Hello, this is Kurt Frankum, and many of you know me as the host of the Leading Saints podcast. But Leading Saints isn't just a podcast. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we strive to create quality leadership content for Latter-day Saints in order to help them be better prepared to lead. With this mission comes a lot of expense, and we need additional help to continue our efforts in the coming year. In order to exchange value for value, we have created the Core Leader Community. To become a core leader, all you have to do is become a subscribing donor, which might be a monthly recurring donation or even a quarterly or yearly donation. For those who become a core leader through a subscription donation, you have access to our core leader library, which includes additional recorded interviews not available to the general audience, access to all virtual summits, discounts on products and conferences, and access to a private CoreCast feed where you will hear additional leadership thought and behind the scenes happenings. We are a community of leaders making this happen, and we need you a part of this mission. Text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to become a core leader today, or visit leadingsaints.org donate. It's podcast time. This is the Leading Saints podcast. I'm your host, Kurt Frankham. Almost said my name wrong. I welcome you back here. If you are new to Leading Saints, you're in the right spot. This is a podcast where we focus on being a better uh, leader as a Latter-day Saint. And that's our mission, to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And a big way, of what, a big tactic, a big strategy, a big approach to how we do that is through this podcast. Now, typically this podcast is released every Saturday. But to we every my goal is that every first Wednesday of the month, we release a How I Lead interview. Now, if you're not familiar with the How I Lead segments on Leading Saints, you should go back and find whatever calling you're in. We've probably done an interview with individuals, either just everyday individuals who've served in your calling or in, in, or in a specific calling, and we just ask them, how is it you lead? What principles do you go by? What's unique about your region, your ward, your area that uh, may be interesting to hear about. And so that's what we do in these How I Lead segments. And today we're focusing on the calling of branch president. Now, not just any branch president. I've actually found two individuals who are citizens of the United States, but who've moved out of the country for one reason or another and have been called to serve in as branch presidents in different countries. So we first will hear from Rich Bangader, who served as a branch president, or I think he's currently serving as a branch president in Malaysia. And I actually recorded this interview with Rich in July of 2019. So I've been sitting on it for quite a while, but it's still good, awesome principles, but you'll maybe hear some phrases and, you know, he mentions the two handbooks, which we now have, which is one handbook, right? So it was recorded back in July of 2019, but still an awesome interview and really interesting to hear about how the church functions in Malaysia. And then recently, I had the opportunity to interview David and Claudia Beal, who have actually been in China, and he was called as a branch president in China, obviously in a obviously in an expat English-speaking ward where they just have people who are not Chinese attending this branch. And it's fascinating to hear his experience as the branch president there, but also Claudia is serving as the district relief society president, who we have determined is the largest geographic relief society in the world, obviously in China. And she talks about sort of the geography that covers. So fascinating interviews, really fun to hear about 
applying leadership principles in foreign lands that are not their own. But these are a lot of principles that we could all apply into our own leadership. So here's my interview with Rich Bangeter and David and Claudia Beal. Today, I'm sitting down through uh, the powers of the internet with Rich Bangeter from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I should have practiced it. that one. Rich, how are you? I'm doing well. Nice. Now, you are not currently recording from Kuala Lumpur. Uh, where, where is it you're at right now? I am sitting in beautiful Driggs, Idaho. <laughs> Just down the street from Malaysia. Just down the street. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and you're there for some uh, family reunions and reconnecting with family. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. So you are a uh, not only a Latter-day Saint, but you're a citizen of the United States of America. And uh, so what uh, landed you in Malaysia? Well, I have to say it was uh, it all started from the mission experience. I grew up in a pretty, I would say, sheltered household in Bountiful, Utah. And after that experience, uh, growing up and, and not having a whole lot of experience outside of Utah, I received a mission call to serve in Romania. It was just after communism had fallen. And that first experience with the language and the culture and the, and the cuisine and, and all the experiences that came with living in a different country were just mind-blowing. And so I figured after that, that I had to, had to find a way that somebody else would pay for me to live and move and work around the world. So I signed up for the uh, Foreign Service. So I worked for the State Department and we staffed the embassies all around the world. So I've spent most of my career in the Middle East, but now le- living in uh, Southeast Asia. Wow, that's fantastic. So do you do you know how long you'll be there? Or Yeah, they're, they're all two-year or three-year assignments. Sometimes you have the possibility to extend. This is a three-year assignment. So we'll be there through summer of 2021. Awesome. Very cool. So, uh, but nonetheless, your background is a uh, fairly traditional and Utah uh, Latter-day Saint experience. Very much so. Yeah. So we spent, so I spent my childhood and my teenage years, like I said, in Salt Lake City, Utah, then served the mission, came back, moved out to Washington, DC, where there is also a very strong Latter-day Saint uh, component. Several of the wards out there feel and look and operate a lot like the high functioning wards that you see in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so, so I had that experience and then moving out overseas was the, uh, the stark difference. Awesome. That's fantastic. So tell us what is not only what Malaysia is like in general, but what is it like being a Latter-day Saint there? So I don't know how to start that whole conversation off, but I will say that Malaysia is a a very interesting country and that it's a, a lot of paradoxes. So for one thing, it is a Muslim country. Indonesia, just to the south, has a much higher population of Muslims but Malaysia is also a, a Muslim country in that they have a, a, a government that the national religion is Islam. So that's kind of a, a thread that's run through my career, right? Because I spent, I spent almost seven years in the Middle East, in the Emirates and in Jordan and in Iraq. And between those experiences, you know, those were much more rigid Islamic countries. And so you come to Malaysia and they have so many influences. They have a huge ethnic Chinese population have a huge ethnic Indian population. So that brings a lot of Buddhism and, and Hinduism. And then you've got lots of Christianity from, from all different sectors. And so there is a really a panoply of religious and cultural backgrounds in a place like Kuala Lumpur. And that, that feeds into the church experience too, right? Because you come to church on Sundays yeah. and you have, you know, you don't have the, the, the Muslim component. If Muslims show up to church in a lot of these countries, you have to stop church services immediately. There is no proselytizing, and the church is very emphatic about this. There's no proselytizing to Muslims. And so 
apart from them, a lot of what we see is, is just a reflection of the Malaysian society in general. You have a lot of ethnic Chinese, a lot of ethnic Indians, and then you've got some, some local Malaysians that are through and through Malaysian. So is your, do you have similar restrictions then as far as really making sure you not only not proactively proselytize to the Muslim population, or, but really just you have to turn them away very directly? Yeah. So that's the, that's the, it's, it's kind of a fine line, but that's the one difference, right? Here in Malaysia, even though it's a, a, a Muslim government, whatnot, if somebody identified themselves as Muslim and they showed up to a church meeting, activity, or sacrament meeting or whatever, we would have to just ask them kindly to to wait for the the gospel and wait for the the government and the the church to open up so that they, they could attend. Whereas in the Middle East, in the Muslim countries that we lived in, it was a, a literally hard stop. If if a Muslim even shows up at church, everything stops. Everybody goes mm-hmm. home and that's it. So it's a little softer in Malaysia, but um, it's still it's still non-participatory as far as as yeah. what the Muslims can do. So, and I've interviewed a few leaders from the, the United Arab Emirates, and you know they they go as far as they don't obviously. There's no missionary program, right? There's no right. word mission leader or anything like that. But is that this case in in your branch? It is not because there is enough of a Christian population because you have those other ethnicities. The church is fully legal there, and we have proselytizing missionaries who do a lot of a lot of finding on their own, and then you know try to work with the members. So a lot of the members, even in the Muslim countries that I lived in before in the Middle East, like in Jordan, the converts that we that we were able to to bring into the church had previously been Christians. So same thing there. You can't proselytize to to Muslims, but there is a, a small enough population of, of already Christianized. Or Christian Arabs that you could you could bring them over. Same thing in Kuala Lumpur. There are so many ethnicities, so many different people of different backgrounds that you know that having a, a ward mission or a branch mission program absolutely makes sense. And I have to say, mm-hmm. for our branch in specific, we have a young single adult crew that is absolutely amazing. Every single week, they are bringing new people, new investigators. Although I think we're not supposed to call them investigators. Right, <laughs> people who are interested in learning more about the the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, they are coming in droves every week, and they they see this community of young single adults who just feed on the positive energy that each other has, and they want to be a part of that. And so, yeah. whether there's a formalized structure or not, when you have people who are lit by that that fire of missionary service and missionary work, then you know you know structure aside, you've got a missionary program, <laughs> and that's what everybody every branch needs. Yeah, for sure. And I guess we haven't really mentioned yet, but you are the newly called branch president in your in your branch there in Malaysia and prior to that served as in the member of the branch presidency because you've only been there about a year, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So I started off as a young men's president for about eight months and then served as a counselor to the previous branch president. And then just, uh, I think four weeks ago, I was uh, called and set apart as the branch president. Nice. And then you got out of town, huh? <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't suggest that for everybody because, man, doing some of the uh, the work of a branch president over uh, over the internet with a 14-hour time difference is not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, so any other characteristics as far as uh, church goes there that would be worth mentioning? Do you, uh, I know in the United Arab Emirates, they meet on, I believe it's Friday. Do you meet on Sunday? We meet on Sundays. Yeah. That's another, I suppose, kind of cosmetic difference with a lot of the other Arab Muslim countries is, yeah, their their holy day is Friday. And Muslims inside Malaysia also attend their Friday prayer services and, and go to mosque and, and uh, do their thing. But the weekend 
in Malaysia is still Saturday, Sunday. And so we do church services on Sunday and that's, that's our Sabbath day. But yeah, I, I, I started off my career in the foreign service in Dubai. So I've lived that life of being in the Emirates. And in fact, we were there at a time when the Emirati government switched the weekend from Thursday, Friday to Friday, hmm. Saturday. And it was really, oh, it was really interesting having church services on the first day of your weekend, right? Because you, you plow through five days of work <laughs> or school, yeah. and then you have your church services, and then you have your weekend day after that. And, and that was a really different way to, to mm. do things. Yeah, I've almost, especially uh, being in a leadership capacity, that's probably the way to do it. Oh, yeah. If, <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if we could set it up that way, oh, that would be great. Right. Oh, that's fantastic. And then obviously, I mean, you do the two-hour church. It's, I mean, as far as the, the schedule and week to week, it's pretty similar to uh, any schedule that you'd experience here in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. It's 100% similar. So if you if you came from middle America and you are in a fully functioning ward here, then you show up at Kuala Lumpur on vacation or whatever, uh, you're going to find the exact same setup. Do the, the first and third for Sunday school, and then the you know the second and fourth Sundays are for priesthood and relief society. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Yeah, awesome. So, what about geographics? Before we uh, hit record, you said that the mission presence set you apart. So, I am assuming you're not in a stake as a branch. You're uh, you report directly to the mission president. Correct. So, we have the the structure where th- there are actually branches that exist in stakes, as I'm sure you know. But sometimes branches, if they're not developed enough, if they're not big enough, then they actually are attached to a mission. So we have, in between the mission structure and the branch structure, we have a district, which is kind of like a stake, but the duties of a district president and a mission president are kind of split up. So there are some things that a district president can do and some things that a mission president can do, but all of those are encompassed in a stake president. Hmm. Yeah. So they sort of uh, carry the the load of a stake president between two people. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Nice. And what mission is it that it's you're in? It's the Singapore mission. It's a little bit different because I think you have a, a little bit more attention from church leadership. Like we, ha- we have, you know, the mission president will come to our district conferences, obviously, and those are run by the district presidency. But, you know, I think more often than not overseas, we've probably had more general authority, more area authority attendance at, at district conferences and whatnot than you would maybe in, in Salt Lake City. I just remember as a kid growing up, in Bountiful, Utah, right? It's the bedroom community of Salt Lake City. And I never saw a full-time missionary. I never saw one. <laughs> they, were, they were a thing on TV, yeah. which is ironic, you know, growing up in, in, near Salt Lake City and then becoming a full-time missionary and then serving most of my adult life in these overseas areas, you get a lot more of that attention. And I'm, I'm, as a father, I'm just eternally grateful. As a branch president, I'm also grateful because the youth get to interact with these elders and sisters on a near weekly basis, if not weekly. Wow, that's great. So, and as far as I understand, uh, uh, the branch president doesn't hold priesthood keys. And so what does that, uh, what sort of things do you have to pass up the line to, I believe, doesn't the district president, is he, he holds keys, but I know obviously this mission president does. Is that accurate? Actually, it's not accurate. The branch president does have priesthood keys. And the oh, okay. branch president operates essentially, in fact, if you read the church handbook, there is a supplementary handbook called the Branch Guidebook. Oh, cool. Other than that, the instructions are for branch presidents to substitute the word bishop for branch president oh, okay. in, in all the readings. So there, still, there's no limitations. The yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no limitations. The, the only real limitations are that a branch president's counselors cannot do certain things. Like branch president's counselors can't do temple recommend interviews. Hmm. So you would which, have to do them all. 
right, I have to do them all, except for I think the limited use ones for the youth and, and for new converts. I think counselors can do those. I'm still learning all of the, yeah, the yeah, contours, right. <laughs> what can and can't be done. But and we try not to shoot from the hip. You know, we, we try to go back to the church handbook as much as we possibly yeah, can yeah. and get answers and also consult with district president, and district district leaders to the degree we can. Yeah, I would but, imagine. But essentially, a, a bishop right. is equivalent to a branch president. Good. Awesome. And I would imagine as I've, you know, interviewed other leaders like in Mongolia where, you know, in Utah, the, the handbook is there and obviously we refer to it, but a lot of these policies and procedures just get so, you know, weaved throughout our, oh, our yeah. culture and our traditions and our routines that, you know, some of these things you don't have to refer back to. But I would imagine in this foreign country, you're visiting it more often than not, right? Yeah. I mean, it was one of the first things I did and I'm not sure, I can't remember, somebody gave me this piece of advice and said, get really familiar. In fact, it might've been from one of your podcasts. Somebody said, you know, get really familiar with the church handbooks. And so before I was even set apart, when I was told that you'll be called and sustained and I accepted the calling and everything, I went through handbook one and two, I think twice, just so I had some well to, to draw on from the future. And it's not like yeah. I memorized it or anything, but if hopefully the spirit prompts you in, in, a, in a given situation to say, hey, there's something in the handbook on that. Yeah. Yeah. There's always something where you just read it over once. It's not like you internalize it, but it just, uh, often you'll think, oh, I didn't even know there was a policy around that. Yeah. Concept, right. So now you sort of file that away. And when it comes up, you know, you don't maybe remember exactly what it says, but you know that it's in there and you should refer back yeah. to it. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I will tell you, Kurt, it's, it's, it's a, there is a degree of shooting by the hip, um, in some situations and, and, and for a type A personality like me who grew up in Utah and, you know, knows that there's church policies on certain things and not church policies on other things, it's, it's super important to make sure that the culture of church leadership does not overtake church policy, right? There are some yeah. things that are not written in there and the <laughs> Lord expects us to, to do the best that we can, right? Yeah. Uh, but Rich, I mean, come on, it's a part of the unwritten order of things, right? Uh, it's just yes. unwritten. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes. I'm being facetious, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, I uh, guess that's you. always the, the go-to. Uh, yeah, it's not in the handbook, but uh, <laughs> it's just the way it's done, and you're supposed yeah. to do it that way. You know, F fill in whatever random rule or policy. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, yep. Uh, well, cool. Uh, it's fascinating to learn about you know uh, the church, especially not only you know outside of Utah, which is its own uh, microcosm, but uh, outside of the the traditional you know, United States of America and, and in, in foreign lands where maybe it's, it's, you have to tweak it a little bit or it's a different approach. Um, mm -hmm. and what's the, what's the closest temple to you? We are actually in the Hong Kong temple district, but the Hong Kong temple just closed for two years for renovations. And in truth, geographically, we're actually closer to, I think the Cebu and maybe even Manila Philippines temples. Nice. They just um, announced the construction of or they, sorry, they announced a couple of years ago the construction of the Bangkok Temple, and I believe they have the land for that. And then just last general conference, they announced even much closer the Phnom Penh Cambodia Temple, oh, which we're right. super yeah. excited about. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. So, just some random like uh, administrative questions, and maybe you haven't been doing this gig long enough to really know the ins and outs, but I'm just curious. Like, if somebody comes to you for a food order or uh, needs rent assistance, I mean, is especially obviously rent assistance, I would imagine you, you just cut a check like anybody cuts a check or, but what about like when someone needs food assistance, is there a Bishop storehouse nearby or do you send yeah. them to the grocery store? Right. So uh, two things. One, uh, there is no Bishop storehouse to answer your question directly and to I, correct I the record, so, yeah. we don't actually do financial assistance to the, you know, how we can. 
with checks. The Malaysian Malaysian financial system doesn't really use checks. And so that puts us in a really kind of awkward position, right? Because yeah. church policy is, you know, no direct cash assistance. And that's easily made up for in the United States and Canada with with those checks, but we can't do checks. So and it funny enough, financial assistance, welfare assistance is the first and the most intense thing that I've had to to deal with, even in the short time that I've been in as branch president. And I dealt with some of the spillover, I would say, even as a first counselor to the to the previous branch president, partially because of the situation that we're in. Malaysia is one of the few countries, I should have mentioned this at the beginning. Malaysia is one of the few countries that has a very open visa on arrival program. So most other countries, you have to apply weeks in advance and it goes through their embassy. And then once you get the visa, then you're allowed to travel. Well, for Malaysia, it hardly matters what nation you're from. You can be from Yemen, Pakistan, Iran. I mean, a lot of the places that we think of as kind of outcast pariah states, they show up at, at the airport in Kuala Lumpur and they have a visa. And so that means you get a lot of refugee populations that come through there. And we, our branch in Kuala Lumpur has a pretty significant population of Pakistani refugees. Some of, I use the term refugee a little bit loosely, right? Some of them are actually mm-hmm. under political pressure or social pressure or even economic pressure in their, in their home country in Pakistan. But many of them just choose to come to, uh, to Malaysia because they have this lax visa system. In any case, the, the branch has a pretty significant population of Pakistani families, many of which have to work on the gray market, many of which do not have the means to provide for themselves, many of which are living in dicey you know, living circumstances or even schooling circumstances for their kids. And they oftentimes look to the branch. Part of their cultural inheritance that's not part of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is that they really see the, the world in terms of social justice, right? Americans, Canadians, Europeans were born in their countries and were given a degree of privilege and a degree of access to to finances and opportunities like education that means that they need to take care of the, the their population. And so they come in with a with a sense of entitlement. They'll they'll walk into the branch president's office and say, "All right, I just arrived here. I don't have a job, so I need you to help me find a job. I don't have rent, so I need you to help me find." Or, or I, I don't even have living circumstances, so I need you to help me find an apartment. We need to get our kids in school. And they're saying this as in, you're the branch president, so provide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just uh, write, the, write the check yeah, or, exactly. or make the money happen, right? Yeah, yeah. just make it happen. Yeah. And so teaching them principles of self-reliance is a huge, huge deal for us. And backing away from the direct cash assistance and even backing away from the idea that we're going to long-term be providing for their rent needs or their schooling needs or whatever, you know, that's that's a real mindset shift for them. It's not just not accepting a check. It's changing that view of entitlement, that that view of social justice that they might have. So that they really do learn the Lord's principles of self-reliance that I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I have to turn to my family first and I have to be creative and invest some faith, be like Ruth, you know, and go out into those fields having nothing and just glean the couple of handfuls of grain that I can. Yeah. So, so without the, the, the check system, I mean, is it involving as many people as possible to transfer cash back and forth? I mean, is cash the only thing you can work on or you can work with? Well, so there, there is a system, there is a banking system. I mean, uh, Kuala Lumpur's financial network is, is pretty big. They discovered natural gas there. I think it was about 20 or 30 years ago. And so they have a thriving economy. 
So the financial sector is no less, but they're, I guess, outcompeted by, by Singapore. So there, there may be easier ways to do it in Singapore. I don't know. But in Kuala Lumpur, we can't actually do cash. We can't actually do bank transfers. So if a member comes in and says, look, I, need, I really need help with rent, then we find out the name of the landlord and we can't actually do an electronic funds transfer from the church's account, from the church's fast offerings funds over to that landlord. But uh, yeah. this is also opens up the opportunity for abuse without, you know, without naming names. I heard of a circumstance just recently within our branch where the member actually provided the name not of the landlord, but of a good friend of the landlord, and they upped the, the, the cost that they needed for rent, and then they were kind of skimming money off of the top, and then also paying their rent. So mm, wow. you have to watch for situations of abuse too. Yeah. I'm sure the audit process is just a, a headache. <laughs> yeah. That is so. one thing I have not yet had to experience, but I have heard from people who have that it is nightmarish. Yes. Nice. Well, cool. Well, we've covered quite a bit, and obviously we could do hours and hours just about uh, the church in Malaysia. But uh, let's shift a little bit to uh, just your leadership experience. Uh, you know, obviously with your few weeks as the branch president, but also in the branch presidency and as young men's president, and just in life as a father and in any other place you've been able to lead. Um, you talk about the principle of defining the definition of leadership as finding other people's needs and filling them. Expand on that. So that thought really kind of came to me as I was preparing a lesson for a group of priesthood holders while I was living and working in Amman, Jordan. And all of the priesthood was combined. You know, we, we did have, like we have now, the, the difference between high priests and, and elders. And yet we had a small enough group that all of the priesthood holders were combined into, into one class. And as I was preparing this lesson, I was really fascinated with my, the leadership training that I've received in my job. I was trying to convert that over and trying to make that applicable, some of those principles applicable to priesthood holders, to, to these fathers and to these brethren in this branch. And through a lot of prayer and fasting and just thinking about it, this is kind of the definition that I came up with, right? Is, is that leadership is not command and control. It's not decision-making. It's finding other people's needs and then filling those needs. And so I still remember teaching that first lesson, but that stuck with me. And it was at such a good time because as the father of four sons, whom I wanted to prepare for full-time missionary service, you know, the real leadership opportunity that we have is, is serving two years and finding people's needs and filling them in both a spiritual sense and then sometimes in, in a temporal sense as well. That was a fantastic opportunity for me as a young father to get that lodged into my brain and then to try and teach that to my sons. And so we have regular conversations in our household about the practical application of that. And as I was mentioning to you before, the, before we started recording the interview, what's been fascinating is watching our sons and even me in my own spiritual journey and my wife in her spiritual journey in leadership in the church, we've put a lot of focus on the obvious part of filling people's needs but really finding people's needs has been the tougher nut to crack because people don't have obvious needs, I think. A lot of people's needs, especially when they're emotional, psychological, or even spiritual, it's not like the cigarette smoke that you smell on, on a guy who's struggling with the word of wisdom. It's not like the alcohol you smell on the breath of, of somebody who's struggling with the word of wisdom. And so I think to kind of summarize my leadership experience around the world, both in the United States and in these far-flung places outside of the United States, it's really come down to staying close to the Spirit. Because that's at the end of the day, that's the only way that you can truly find out somebody else's needs when it's not completely obvious. You have to have that prompting from the Spirit to say, hey, 
reach out to brother so-and-so, reach out to sister so-and-so because they have something that you can give them they can't get somewhere else. I love that. And this is sort of, you know, talk about a tough nut to crack. This is a, a nut that everybody in the church is sort of trying to figure out how to crack because since we've shifted to this ministering approach to, you know, instead of home and visiting teaching where it's supposed to be a more organic relationship, a more organic service to help those in need. And, you know, there's a lot of time I think of the people on my ministering list, you know, I I, I try and I'm not, but I'm scratching my head a lot thinking, man, they just think, I mean, I, I don't kid myself in thinking that they have life all put together perfectly, <laughs> but it's, it's not obvious a lot of the time. And so, and I love, you know, obviously your, your point of just listening to the spirit and which can be powerful and just being prayerful about it. Right. But is there any other, any other habit or routine that you have placed in your life or in your family to help you more likely trip over these opportunities of, of filling those? Absolutely. Needs? And I will tell you, it comes back to a talk I think that Elder Ballard gave several years ago in general conference on councils. And I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was that famous one that was titled Counseling and Councils. So you got both of those, uh, you got that play on words. Yeah. But it was in that talk or in a different talk. But in one of these general conference talks, the apostle who was speaking to us talked about and gave us instruction as parents to be, to be holding family councils, right? And he gave us instructions on how to do that. And he talked about different types of family councils. So we think of family councils as kind of a modified family home evening. You get everybody in the same room, you tackle a problem, and you all talk about it, and you come up with a solution. Okay, absolutely should be having family councils. But the one thing that, that I think maybe slipped under the radar screen for a lot of us that we, that me and my wife really took to heart was having interviews. We call them interviews. I think he called them, he called them councils of, one-on-one councils, I think is what he called them. But we take once a month, we sit with each of our sons and we'll spend as much time as they need. We do it on fast Sundays because that seems to be the most obvious time. But we'll sit with each of our sons and we'll just talk about everything. And I'll tell you what, Kurt, that has done more in terms of, of helping us work through and find these practical opportunities for church service. Really good example as a side note is our oldest son, who when we were living in a ward in Virginia, was in a teacher's quorum with a particular of his peers that was really struggling with the church and really struggling with integrating socially and whatnot. And I think a lot of 14-year-old kids are thinking to themselves, I- I'm just not going to spend my time with this kid. Our personalities don't match up. I have no, we have, we have no shared interests. And he's just a kind of an odd cat. So I'm just going to let him be and I'm going to do my own thing. It's through these interviews, through these one-on-one family councils with that 14-year-old son that we got to say, what is this peer of yours? What's his need? He needs to be feel he needs to feel acceptance. He needs to feel like somebody is his friend. Even if he kind of is standoffish and and seems to reject it at first, you just never know the the kind of effect that's going to have on him long term. And so this 14-year-old son of ours, ironic priesthood holder, doesn't do that thing where he says, This is a a guy who doesn't have shared interests, and so I'm just not going to attempt to be friends. It's through those one-on-one interviews that he saw the opportunity and started at least at at church on Sundays, and then later started even at school to befriend him. And I wouldn't say that they became best of friends. I wouldn't say that that this young man, you know, turned a corner and you know all of a sudden became a thriving member of the of the teachers quorum or of the church or anything. But you also never know what kind of effect that's going to have on him later in life. And I, I'll tell you the other thing is the effect that it had on our son was he went through that process. He thought about and prayed about what does this kid need. What does this peer of mine need? And that's 
training and leadership. That's what's going to make him a really super effective missionary. Yeah. Wow. I love that. And I've talked a lot about uh, just the general concept of, you know, the power of one-to-one interviews and especially in a leadership, leadership context, like it's easy to think, you know, I don't, I don't really have anything to talk to the young men's president about. So, you know, why don't we just skip our PPI this month and we'll do another month. But just the action and the exercise of like sitting down with somebody and just start talking, you know, with even with no agenda, you're just like Uh connecting for a moment. And the things that come to the surface, especially, I mean, this is magnified in that parental context, right? Where you're just sitting down with your son and it's fast Sunday and you start talking about life. And and that's where these things come to the surface, right? And, And you're able to just dive in and and really find needs. Yeah. And teach, right? I mean, that's the, that's the perfect time to teach. Mm, Yeah. You talk about the, the, you know, the shift towards home centered church supported learning. Well, if it's centered in the home, then this is exactly the thing we need to be doing. Here's the other long-term effect that it's really benefited us as parents with is communication, right? We started these interviews and we've done these interviews since our kids were five, six years old. And you can imagine how long an interview with a five-year-old lasts. How is kindergarten going? How do you like your primary class? How are you feeling about things in your family? Right? That's it. And it's, it's five minutes and it's done. But like so many of the general authorities have said over the years, it is not about content. It is about consistency. Because our sons, now that they're 16, 14, 12, and 10, you know what they look forward to? You know the time that they know they can talk to mom and dad without being judged? And just open communication, just open thoughts about anything is during those interviews. So even if they're not talking to us during the week, and our boys are like a lot of boys, right? We sit down at the dinner table too, and we ask them, how was your day at school? And they give us the one grunt answer. And yet, we have these fast Sundays, <laughs> yeah. these one-on-one interviews where they open up to us about you know, the girls that they're interested in and you know, what, life is like gonna, what life is going to be like as a full-time missionary and how hard it is to be in an international school and not back in the States. You know, and all these topics that, that you want to be talking to your kids about, you want them to be open about. And heck, what about the time when you're, I mean, I, I never felt more like a father than when my oldest son came to me and said, Dad, I think I got a problem with pornography. And that came because we had had interviews with that kid since he was five years old. And that came during an interview, right? If we hadn't been having that consistency, then yeah. I don't know if he would have felt comfortable telling us something like that. Wow. Those are like huge parental paydays, right? When they're, when you, they Big are- time. They come to you with those things and yes. they trust you enough to bring that to your attention. You know, because yeah. of, again, the consistency is key. It's not that you have to write, ask the right question or the right setting. I mean, some of those things help, but just being consistent about it will absolutely be the world of difference, right? Wow. Yep. I'm glad we uh, we found that. Anything else as far as any other habits or routines that you do to to, to find the needs? I don't know. I think. I think those kind of be the two principal ones is the, you know, okay. the structures of interviews and then, you know, staying close to the spirit. And then apart from that, I jump back to what you said. I'm still kind of learning this gig. Yeah, sure. Well, I think this next uh, principle or, or concept would be a good one to, to wrap up on. You, you talk about just living overseas. It really just takes you back to time where it almost feels like you're living in the doctrine covenants, right? That where everything's sort of fresh and new and there's unique problems you're discovering that maybe have never been discovered before, you know, in other (laughs) church contexts. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, where have you noticed where, I mean, and we've already probably touched on some things, but where have you noticed where it is sort of feels like you're, you're living in the Doctrine and Covenants? Yeah. So, I mean, this, this has happened over and over again. I mean, there's, I mean, we could fill the rest of the interview with just stories of, of what living in the Doctrine and Covenants must have been like, I think. But I'll tell you the two stories that jumped to mind most quickly 
are my very first Sunday as branch president. So this was like three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, I walk into our church building and it's about 8.45. So we have branch council that's starting at nine o'clock. So at just 10, 15 minutes before that meeting starts. And I walk into kind of what the lobby area is like in our church building. And our newly baptized, I mean, he's, he hasn't been baptized for maybe four weeks. He's our Sunday school president. He's just been set apart as Sunday school president, is standing in the lobby, and he is pointing his finger and shouting at the top of his lungs to another branch member who's sitting on the couch. And this <laughs> branch member is kind of rifling through his backpack. And, and, and this is the scene that I walk into my very first Sunday, right? Hey, go save the day, president. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just happened to be an opportunity of, of circumstance, I guess, because had anybody else walked in, they, that's the scene they would have encountered too. It wasn't because I was branch president, but I certainly felt this obligation of like, of, you know, calling the situation down and figuring out what, what had happened. And as it, you know, long story short, this newly called Sunday school president, this newly set apart Sunday school president was pretty sure that this other branch member had gotten into his backpack and taken money out of his wallet. And long story short, you know, the branch member who was accused has some mental issues and probably actually did take the money. And we found that he, that he had a few minutes before that incident had taken a wall clock and a whiteboard marker and a couple of other odds and ends and put them in his bicycle basket. And so, so he was, he's struggling with uh, kleptomania or, or with his own mental health issues and probably not quite realizing the consequences of, of, of his actions. But then you've got this new convert who is just lighting into this brother. So first, we just calm the situation down, separate them, figure out what's going on. And I tell you, this was one of the hardest things that I've had to do in all of my years of church leadership. Definitely the hardest thing that I had to do as branch president because I'd only been in for a couple of days. But I had to ask <laughs> yeah. this brother who I think probably did take this other brother's money. I had to ask him, would you just not come to church today? I think it'd be better if you sat this one out and, and let's see at church next week. I felt like yeah. immediately the impression that came to me was is the, the safety and security of our branch members while they're attending church especially has to be absolutely paramount. And as anathema as it felt, I felt like asking this bro other brother to just step aside for a Sunday was the best thing to do. And then I called the Sunday school president into, into my office and we had a great conversation. Within five minutes, he was talked off the ledge and his anger was dissipated and he felt the love of Jesus Christ both for himself and for this other brother. And he even bore testimony about that later in our priesthood meeting. So that was a fantastic opportunity. But, you know, it just, it was these, it was these Thomas B. Marsh proportion, you know, incidents that came back to me. These, these stories of the Doctrine and Covenants where you've got, you know, pretty high up leaders, you know, these are the leaders of the branch. <laughs> and if they can't keep it together, then how are we going to keep it together? So that was, yeah. that was the first study that I encountered as branch president. The other story, the other vignette that I was going to share with you is from my time in Jordan. We had a great family, Arab Christians who converted to, uh, converted to the church, were baptized. They were great, great members. And they always had their eyes focused on getting to the temple and being sealed together as a family. And yet, this man, who was the patriarch of his family, who had grown up in Arab Christian, I mean, he's, he, he was 50 years old if he was a day. He'd spent 50 years experiencing Christianity as the Easter and Sunday services, right? So getting him to attend church was so difficult. He just didn't capture, he didn't understand, you know, the principles that, that we understand growing up in the church around Sabbath observance. And so getting him to not work and getting him to show up at church with his family and to fulfill his calling was really difficult. You know, I'm, I'm one of his priesthood leaders. I'm not the branch president, but 
I'm kind of the eldest quorum president and I'm, I'm just racking my brain to try and figure out how can we help this guy get, get back into activity? How can we help him capture what it is to be a member of the, of the restored church? And I worked on that for years. I mean, I really did. And then just as we're leaving, this brother invites me and my family to his hometown. It's, I don't know, 50 miles outside of Amman, Jordan. And his family has been raising sheep for years and years. They slaughter a sheep for us and they make this dish called mansuf, which is their local dish. And it's, it's the, the sheep meat that's cooked over a really long period of time in this kind of yogurt sauce. And it's, it's just an amazing, fantastic feast. So we have this meal. After we're done with the meal, we walk outside and we're walking across basically the open desert. And he introduces me to the Orthodox priest that he, uh, the Armenian Orthodox priest that he grew up with. We have a great conversation with him. As we're coming back away, we're standing in this just desert wasteland with his family home in one area and, and the, the Orthodox church in the other area, but there's nothing else. And he stops and he just looks around for a second and he says, Brother Rich, I have a vision of a temple being built here one day. And you could just feel the spirit just dump out on us, just mm. yeah, pour wow. out all over. Because here is a man who, in my petty, you know, Utah Mormon boy perspective, thought this guy, what this guy needs is, is, come, is to come to church every week. And yet he already had the vision, right? It didn't translate in the same way that, that I expected, but he had the vision. He had the spirit uh, with him. And and I walked away from that experience realizing something about leadership, and that's that we can try all we want to help people in the way that we think that they need. But getting back to that definition of leadership, right, truly finding out what they need, that can only come through the Spirit. Today, I have the opportunity to connect through the power of Zoom with uh, David and Claudia Beal. How are you two? Very well. Doing well. <laughs> Thank you. Now, you are currently in Texas. It's your uh, new home down there. What, what part of Texas? Little town of Hamlin, population 2,000, about wow. 45 minutes drive northeast of Abilene. Very nice. West Texas. Now, the, the, the ironic thing is that you're living in Texas at the moment, and we're recording this on April 21st in the, in the middle of, well, who knows if it's the middle, but <laughs> in the midst of, a, uh, of the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. And so the ironic thing is you are living in Texas, but you're currently the branch president of a branch in China, right? That is correct. <laughs> nice. And that's the Xi'an English branch. Did I say that right? They say it Xi'an, X-I apostrophe A-N. Perfect. And uh, Claudia, are you, you're also the Relief Society president right now? Or? I'm actually the district Relief Society president, so not over a branch, but over five branches. Oh, the district. Okay. Wow. Great. And uh, so let's just start from as far as what, what, what encouraged you to go to China? What, how did that start? We are there. We were there as part of BYU's China Teachers Program. We left the United States at the end of August 2018, and we're in the middle of our second year of teaching when we came back to the States for what we thought would be a four-week visit leaving China January 28th, and uh, we have not been able to go back because of the right. pandemic. And now we're not welcome back. The um, visas have all been canceled, and you know we have our, our larger problems in the States, I think, than what they have in, sure. in China for yeah. the virus. 
Yeah, even if you wanted to go back, you're probably not going to find a flight, right? Right. <laughs> so obviously, you're just sort of in a holding pattern right now, but still uh, managing, it, you know, the, your administrative and branch duties from there. So maybe what just talk to us through as far as the English teaching program. This was something that it's not necessarily a, a mission, but it's more of just something through BYU that, that you did? Right. Missionaries are not allowed in China, proselytizing missionaries. And uh, the BYU China Teachers Program has been going for 31 years now. We were the 30, year 30 mark when we began in the fall of 2018. So yes, we teach at Northwest University, university students, English. Our students happen to all be studying information technology. Oh, wow. So all generally college-age students? Right, they are. Wow, that's great. And so you're you're enjoying that, and obviously you need a place to attend church on Sunday, and I know there's a, a lot of restrictions with the, the church there, with any religion. Maybe talk us through what those restrictions are and, and explain sort of the what the branch is like there, the English-speaking branch. Well, it's an awesome branch, first of all. I'll answer that question first. <laughs> it's a very sweet, close-knit group of uh, expatriates from around the world. Many of us, most of us are from the United States, but we come from other places as well. And uh, as you probably know, we are not allowed to mix or with Chinese nationals. We are aware that they're- For church. For church, for church. And in fact, we are very careful in all of our conversations on WeChat, which is uh, China's social media that we use extensively for our connections in China with one another and in our group chats for the branch. We're very careful to not even say the word church. We call the place where we meet the villa. We are extremely careful and read the reminder of restrictions that we have for religious observation and behavior while we're there. Every Sunday. Yeah, every Sunday first before we start the meeting. Mm -hmm. So the sacrament sure. meeting, we stand up and, and share that. Right. It's a sweet branch. We have a, about 25 show up average. And uh, we sometimes will get surprised by a group of students who, uh, who, who drop in and double our, our population at, at sacrament meeting on that particular Sunday. We love it when they come. And, they're they're uh, touring. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Nice. And so, Claudia, for you, how did the uh, how long have you been the the uh, district relief society president, and how did that call come? Well, it uh, was uh, in October this year. Then I got a phone call from one of the branch president, I mean district presidency, and just asked me if I would uh, be willing to do that and explained what it meant and. I was very excited about it and anxious to go visit these far-flung places. Very far. There are five different units. They are in four cities, including ours is Xi'an. But there's also one called the CCID, Central China International District Branch. And so just to tell you a little bit about the district, well, and I'll just tell you about how many districts there are in China. Okay. There is one, there's one in and around Beijing, there's one in and around Shanghai, and there's another one that's near Sunjin, which is just uh, off the border of Hong Kong. And the fourth one is the China Central International District, and it includes the rest 
of China. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's a very big thing. How many, what did he tell us? It was. Well, if you count everyone within her jurisdiction, <laughs> because we like to consider that we have responsibility for everyone, even though we aren't able to connect with the Chinese nationals. He has 1.2 billion with a B. <laughs> and uh, wow. so she far exceeds my jurisdiction of 10 million. That's just a, a drop in the bucket. Right. So, Claudia, you, you preside over the largest Relief Society in the world. Is that what, is that what we're getting at here? <laughs> Probably. I'm not sure if there would be one bigger, but. Yeah, Luckily, you don't have to deal with the, the problems of one point whatever billion people, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, our branches are in, you know, smaller areas, but there is one called the Central China International District Branch that covers everything else, anything that is any city that is not within these four cities that we have covered. And so that their branch actually is in a virtual branch where they do it mm-hmm. over the... Mm-hmm. Over the phone. Their average nice. attendance is about 150 for that branch, and uh, they just every call Sunday. in. Yeah, they And uh, so by phone, it, it's it's one of a home and two of a village, or whatever <laughs> the the reference might be. But pretty thrilling. Yeah, um, it's, it's to thrilling. think how that works. My responsibility is to encourage and help help the Relief Society presidents in each of those branches in whatever way I can. None of us serve with counselors. There aren't that many people to choose from. I mean, that international one sure has, but it's just a great way to stay connected. You asked earlier what would be the maybe a, a theme that I would think of with my calling, and I would I'd have to call it the miracle of ministering because it's it's wonderful. We communicate with each other and check on each other and share ideas over the WeChat or or internet somehow. Anyway, it's, it's very wonderful. I was really looking forward to visiting uh, during ward conferences and actually making flights or train rides. The furthest one is 12 hours on the train ride, and then there's one that's just 10. And that, <laughs> anyway, so they're uh, very spread out. Very wow. So during ward conferences, there is opportunity for you to travel and actually meet many of these people in person. Yeah, if it were, weren't for the virus, it would have happened really nicely in February, but well. Oh, well. <laughs> Not an option now, for Maybe sure. Maybe if we get back there. <laughs> yeah. So with your day-to-day or week-to-week responsibilities on a, on a typical, you know, virus-free world, was it just a lot of phone calls? I mean, did you, or maybe were there some Sundays that there wasn't anything to do? For me, yes. Not yeah, for, for him. You. He's very right. Busy. Not for him, but for you, Claudia. Yeah, that's right. And I just check it. I'm here in the states. I just check in with the Relief Society presidents. You know, once once every couple of weeks, and they're doing great. Most of them are here in the states. So, hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And and maybe uh, David, you can speak to this as far as as everybody you know was leaving the country. You know, with with the virus hitting, and and you left before. You didn't leave because of the virus. You were just planning on visiting family in the States. Is that right? Exactly. We had made our reservations last fall to uh, spend four weeks between January 28th, when we left China, and February 25th. And uh, there, we certainly started hearing about the coronavirus the week or two ahead of that. And the week 
I guess that there were a few days that they checked our temperatures as we were coming into campus and, and uh, you know, every time we came on. And so, and yet we were able to travel here, arriving the same day that we left, January 28th, back here in the States. And it just seemed like starting the very next day that things started to become more and more earnest. And uh, we got, and we learned from the from the administrators of the China Teachers Program that anyone who was still in China should make arrangements to leave. And so things started to feel uneasy and uncertain almost immediately. And uh, it was pretty hard because we didn't anticipate that we would not be returning. I don't think any of us would have seen how drastically the world has changed in those weeks and months since then. And so our hearts went out to the people uh, of our branch. And of course, I wanted to keep track of them. The district president wanted also to know if people needed anything, if they had enough masks, if they had any needed any food, that sort of thing. And so from Utah, I was keeping a spreadsheet of where everyone was. And some of them were in transit because our China teachers program has a, a group of very active people that love to get out and see the beautiful cities and sites of, of not only China, but that part of Asia. And so there were a number of them that were that had reservations on cruise ships and various and sundry other places and things that they were involved in. And so it took us a while to get home. And in fact, there were at least a couple of families that didn't quite make it there. <laughs> and they found other lovely places to stay for a while. One of our branch members, instead of coming back to the States, to Michigan, is still in Singapore. And a family that meant to go back to Brazil are stuck in Portugal. And so we're, um, we're so grateful that we have the powers of technology to keep our branch together. And we reminisce about the olden days and we encourage each other. And um, those of us who were BYU teachers, many of us are, but not all, uh, continue, most of us, to teach online to the students that we are not able to meet with anymore. So that's a sweet thing in a way, but it's it can be a bit treacherous knowing that um, for us here living in Texas, it's a 13-hour time difference, and the time difference gets worse as you move west um, across mountain and Pacific time zones. So yes, we we long to go back to China, but it seems that that's not in the cards. Uh, could be many months, if ever. We still pray to go back because we love the place. And uh, yeah. Miss miss the people so much. We felt really strongly about signing up for that third year. Um, so the Lord knows wow. we're willing, so we'll see. <laughs> That's right. And it's encouraging, you know, to hear that, you know, you stay connected and you're doing your, you know, that type of a branch is one that really does need to stay connected mm -hmm. and in touch right. where, you know, here in, in Utah, sometimes, you know, I don't hear from my word for a week or two and that's okay. You know, we're, I know they're down the street and I'm down the street, but, <laughs> but for that, especially with different nationalities that are, are part of that. And then now they're spread across the world. It's mm -hmm. uh, that was sort of their anchor and their home base. For oh, the absolutely. Gospel, absolutely. You know? 
I wrote to, I couldn't help but writing to my own minister yesterday. He's in Orem, Utah. And I said, you're my minister. Remember, you need to call me. Check on me. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, I as, as we do in these How I Lead interviews, I generally just love to hear from people's experiences, especially those uh, who've had opportunity to serve internationally. And uh, obviously in, in the Xi'an English branch is a unique experience in and of itself. So David, maybe just tell us how did that, I imagine that call came through a phone call just like uh, Claudia's did. Uh, what do you remember from that experience? You know, it was a sweet weekend because our branch was lined up to have a branch conference, right? Or a district, branch or district conference? It was district and they were going to originate it from our... Right, that was it. And so we had we had just a couple of weeks before sustained a new district presidency. And they arranged to come to Xi'an to conduct the, the district conference from there. And the the district president phoned me and asked if he could come to our apartment. And I said, sure. And I really didn't see it coming. And in fact, I had, you know how Heavenly Father sometimes is clever with you so that, <laughs> so that you don't uh, faint and die for for loss of, of breath, you know. <laughs> oh, yes. I should say that the district, we knew that the branch president was going to be released because his, his term as a, as a BYU China teacher had come to an end or was about to. But I, I thought, well, isn't it nice that the district president wants to come see us? And I had had a feeling that it would be someone else, you know, that would be called. So I said, sure, come on up. We live in a building with no elevator. And I said, it's exact, exactly 100 steps from the street level up to our apartment. But, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we, we would welcome you here. I just want to warn you about that, that commute that you need to get to our apartment. And he put Claudia and me into one of our rooms and in our apartment and asked about my temple worthiness and my willingness to serve as a branch president. And I was so surprised. I said, yes, of course, and could kind of feel my world caving in on me a little bit. And yet I felt so grateful to be able to do it and was willing to do it. And it was a great thing to feel the mantle settle on me in the next couple of days. Mm -hmm. From then on, it was just a beautiful thing. Yeah. And um, I felt that I received very generously from from a heavenly father that knew that we were there, this little group of, of people, you know, from around the world, trying to do our best in a place where we have such restrictions for, for sharing the gospel. It's simply not done with the China nationals and, and the conversations need to be very carefully watched. And so it's a sweet thing to be there. And so just sort of getting, you know, accustomed to that new role, Maybe explain your your typical Sunday experience at the villa, you know, at the church, and 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 going through the, your the duties and responsibilities you have. Sure, our meetings start at ten o'clock. We all arrive by bus or by taxi cab. Nobody has a car there, you know, except one of our members who has a car that are currently living in Iran is where they ended up. But it is a, the sweetest place that we've ever been to church. We are just very anxious to be with each other. And we often, twice a month regularly, have linger longers. 
those kinds of things are usually reserved for the young single adults, but but to us, it was uh, a, a very meaningful thing to do as well. And uh, great sacrament meetings, very good people. And we just enjoyed our our two-hour block. We were two hours before it was fashionable to be two hours. <laughs> and uh, oh, the building is in an international district of very beautiful homes. It is a home with four levels. And uh, it is beautiful. We do most of our things on, the, we, we do our worshiping on the, the second floor, which is the ground floor as you come into the building. But beneath that is a place where we have our linger longers, and it's a pretty fun place down there, a little different, different building materials and so forth. Yeah. So that we so, can... Fancy. Mm-hmm. So is this a home that, uh, I mean, does the church own the home, and, and or do they rent it? Or You know, uh, I don't know all there is to know about the financial arrangements, but uh, that is is something that the church has taken care of for us. Nice. Good. And so did you have one room that you sort of used as your branch president office? Right. I did on the on, on the third floor, second floor up from ground. And that we also had a room there where uh, the men met for priesthood meeting while the women stayed in the in the designated chapel downstairs. Primary room. Yes, and a primary room upstairs by the by the men. Speaking of primary children, we officially have one primary child. That's uh, active. That's active. We have three others who who come when they can. And um, so it's pretty much primary in a Petri dish. I called it one Sunday where where Danilo, our oldest primary child, is pretty well taken care of. We have a full primary presidency for this one child, and they also reach out to the others who come when they can. Really taking care of the ones in a new way. But Danilo thought that that uh, when they started attending our branch, he thought that our the place where we met for our sacrament meeting was a temple because it does have a beautiful chandelier in it. So we like to to think about that. That's great. So as far as like staffing the ward with you know and your ward council or your branch and your branch council, obviously you know you don't need full presidencies, nor is there maybe the the human resources for such a thing. Mm-hmm. So how have you approached as far as staffing the ward and, and covering those needs? You said it well, you know, just using the inspiration and recognizing that there are some organizations that we simply don't have. No need for young men, young women, or what do we call young young men, young women of the <laughs> youth program? We don't have any of that population, of that demographic. And so we don't have those people. We do have some members of our of our branch who wish we did because that's what their experience in the in the church has been. We have single adults. We have single adults. It so happens that on the campus where Claudia and I live, we have two students who are in that young single adult category. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Susie, who joined later on. So saying nothing of a fourth young single adult who is from Ecuador and took the missionary lessons from a couple in our branch. Marvelous, marvelous woman, 24 years old. And we didn't quite get her baptized. I did give her her baptismal interview the week before we left China. It just didn't work out with things. And this is when the coronavirus was becoming more a part of our lives that that we were not able to make that happen. But we're in touch with her. She's part of our WeChat group. 
Mm. A lot of tender feelings about that these last few months that we'll connect with her and and have a baptism somewhere. Nice. So missionary work still happens. It's just not uh, formalized or <laughs> a right. proactive effort, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, we, we, we can teach and speak about religious things with expatriate members, you know, those who are not China nationals. Nice. Nothing in our classrooms ever sure. about religion. Yeah, I bet. I'm sure you're very careful on, on <laughs> mm-hmm. how you articulate said, things there. I'm so. from Brigham Young University, and I, we hope they'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, and you mentioned there. there's three sort of principles that you you were inspired to lead by as you started your responsibilities as the branch president. And maybe we'll just go touch on some of those and maybe a story or two will come out from those. Uh, the first one that came to mind for you is have a loving heart. And uh, how did you go about uh, leading with a loving heart? You know, that was an idea that was uh, suggested to me by a, a sister-in-law, I would have to say. Jana came up with that little phrase for me. It is where it all begins with me and with members of our branch, very caring of one another and of the students that we teach. So having a loving heart is an important first step. And to do everything that we do with that loving heart in our teaching, for instance, to do it without judgment. And when we began with our teaching with the BYU China Teachers Program, we were advised that Instead of feeling like we needed to change things about China that we found to be frustrating or difficult, that we should instead let China change us. And that was another nice little mantra for many of us that helped us do, helped us enjoy the experience there. And that, of course, just flows into the concept of having a loving heart. And that's enough on that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, perfect. And these are and these are principles that we go through these that you didn't just uh, reflect on internally. I mean, you tried to create a culture in your branch around these right. principles, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. And, and what, what did that look like as far as you just mentioned it often or uh, made it a theme or how did you go about infusing that into your culture? You know, I um, the first time that I was officially a branch president, I knew that I wanted to come up with three things. When Claudia and I were, were newer in our marriage, we lived in, a, in Illinois, and a bishop, a young bishop there, came up with three things. And I thought, what a brilliant way to begin with a branch. And so my three were very, very different from his. But it was important that I have those three things. And it took me a few days before I came up with the third. And I have to laugh a little bit because some of the wording is not the way that I would have said it if I would have made it up mm. in some sort of branding effort or whatever. But number one, as you've said, was to have a loving heart. Shall I announce the other two? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's just go with the second one. We'll, okay. we'll keep them. Sure. Keep the intensity there for number three. <laughs> All right. Number two is to notice the daily miracles, write about them, and pray for more. And I would have to say and something that I often said during the first year of of Claudius and my being there in China, was that there were many days that were not pretty, so to speak, very frustrating and difficult and felt very isolated, you know, some of those things that you might imagine being so far away from home. But regardless of the difficulty or the challenge, there was always a miracle to me personally that I recognized. One of the beautiful things about being on the top of a of our apartment building was just being steps away from the roof where I often went in the morning and 
And that's where I experienced so many of my miracles to help me see. And uh, miracles were happening all around. And especially with the, in view of the entirety of China and the beautiful place that it is and the people that are so magnificent even now and considering a future where they will understand a gospel that they have not yet heard. It's really thrilling to me to, to consider the miracles that are starting to unfold. One of the miracles that I observed, you couldn't help but observe, was David as a just, a, he was just being who David is, but he seemed to have a magnetism toward, or they to him, the Muslim men on our campus. There were lots and lots of foreign students there, and it just seemed like they loved him. They would come to him, and they were very warm, warm people, giving hugs, and they called him uncle. Anytime, anytime I walked across campus with David, and you'd see anybody that was from any Muslim country, they'd say, uncle and come up and give him a big, huge hug. And everybody, we had lots of them up to our apartment for American food. And anyway, it was just a really wonderful way to just to share who you are, whether it's America or whether it's love or the gospel in a very un-missionary-ish way. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, sure. it was yeah. a fun thing. He, David, has he doesn't know a stranger, that's for sure. <laughs> and just sort of uh, ministering and connecting through that love. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, nobody can really stop the gospel from being preached when you can have a loving heart, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. very true. It was, it was a beautiful experience. We miss those people very much. That's great. So, David, anything you'd add with uh, number two as far as recognizing miracles? And, and I love the, the emphasis on writing and praying for more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was miracles just happen all the time in a place like China. But it does take the observance of it to recognize that. Nice. Yeah. And so did you have a, a certain routine uh, or ritual as far as writing these things down? Or, did, or are you a big journaler? Is that? <laughs> you know, my goal is to write, I call them my morning pages from a book that I read, what, read once. And so I like to begin my day with a stream of consciousness sort of approach. And then another goal is to write my successes, or what I also call my Iring journal. I remember several years ago that President yeah. Iring said that he had been encouraged by heaven to keep track of the things that were happening to him in his life, where God had blessed him. And uh, when I follow that that routine of, of journal writing, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, love that. All right, reveal number three to us then. <laughs> number three, and this is where the wording was straight from heaven. Acknowledge the gathering and do what you can. Now, the word gathering is uppercase because we're, we're talking about the gathering of Israel, as President Nelson has told us, that happens on both sides of the veil. And um, that's just too beautiful to, to not have anchor in my heart, especially in China. But even now, I've, I have such a new appreciation for the fact that that the gathering is our means of reaching out in love to people to bring them ultimately to worship of Jesus. And that is something that is not allowed in China. And so we just do what we can. Hopefully people feel that we are different and they feel of our love. And 
we have lots and lots of friends on our WeChat telephones to keep track of those people that we love. We hope never to lose track of them. Yeah, yeah. we had an opportunity uh, last year through BYU. They came to China. They came to our city to perform, and it was all the performing groups. It was called the Spectacular in China. BYU Spectacular. It was amazing because to have all those youth and perform, I don't even know how they actually worked it out because it was really iffy until the end whether they really could come. But when we knew that they were coming and they were coming to Xi'an, we just thought we've got to get as many people as we can possibly get. And so we just started inviting people and the tickets were not cheap, but we didn't care. It was our one chance at missionary effort, an opportunity. In fact, I, uh, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters were aware of it and they started sending us money so that we could buy more tickets. <laughs> so David and I got to go both nights and we took 55 people with us. So it was just marvelous. Wow. And they loved it. They loved it. Oh, they loved it. It was great. So, that's been phenomenal. And, and, I, and I just love this uh, bit of inspiration with number three, as far as like focusing on or acknowledging the gathering, right? Because it can feel like, you know, not that China's forgotten, but it just can feel like an empty religious place, you know, at least mm -hmm. from, from our perspective at times. But to be there and to see, you know, actually, you know, God's gathering all his children. And maybe there's some restrictions that make it more difficult, but uh, it's still happening. When it breaks open, it'll be beautiful. I bet. I bet. And uh, to, I bet the announcement of the China temple was, oh. was a big one for you, too. Yes, there were many tears in our living room that day. So no, exciting. It's, it's such a privilege, such a privilege to teach the 240 students that we have, even this semester that we're teaching online, because every day you walk into the classroom, we have classrooms of 30, and it is golden for someone who is a missionary. They're there. They're already there. And you just can't talk about the gospel, but you sure can express your love and you sure can talk about gospel principles. It's a wonderful opportunity and a great blessing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, I, I pray that you you two get to go back at some point, especially since you're uh, presiding over that branch there, and, and that branch is now stretched through all corners of the earth. So uh, you truly do uh, have the largest branch in the world. So that's, just, mm. that's awesome. Well, any um, as we wrap up, uh, Claudia, maybe we'll, we'll start with you as, as you reflect on your time as the District Relief Society president. How has that opportunity to lead made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, I think just being able to be around these amazing women and to just, like you were saying, the, to feel the love of, of Heavenly Father for all of his children those Chinese people that we can't associate with, but we are the expatriate group who have such a power and influence in the gathering. I think that President, Mont uh, President Nelson is really counting on us to do what we can there. I love the fact that we can minister. We can minister right now. All of us can minister. I love that he, that, uh, that is probably central. To everything, all the connections that we make in China, whether they're members or whether they aren't, whether they're sisters in the Relief Society, it's the same. It's the same. It's a. It's just a great privilege, and I. I think I've learned to, to really 
uh, recognize that and love love being able to associate with other sisters and recognize the non-member Chinese sisters as vital as well. And I count them on my ministering list too. So <laughs> very good. That's great. David, what about you? How has uh, your time as the, the branch president of the Xi'an English branch, how, your opportunity to lead there, how's that made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, you know, it really has. I alluded earlier to the fact that life in China isn't always a simple thing or an easy thing, or, you know, sometimes you just miss certain foods and something as unimportant as that. But there are a number of things that that can make you feel a bit challenged and, and isolated from things that you maybe could be doing back home. I Even before I became branch president, I felt that the only way, certainly the best way, to make the experience wonderful, not just for myself, but to make a significant contribution to my students and to the friends that we had, and, and then ultimately to the branch as branch president, was to anchor myself in Jesus Christ, recognizing that he and my Heavenly Father can make more of me than what I am able to make of myself, and acknowledging how much I owe the Savior. That was a grounding principle for me. I loved serving as branch president and felt the Spirit with me very often, at times when I may not have even deserved it as much as I felt it. But I I felt that I was what the Lord had to speak to the members of my branch and to make a difference to the people that we came in contact with over there. So it is, it's a beautiful thing to preach about Jesus and to take him on more completely as, as my personal savior, recognizing that he died for me and that he has done so much for me. And so I, I think that our branch really worked well together on that principle, knowing that that was the very essence of of what there is in our worship. That concludes my interview with Rich Bangeter and David and Claudia Beal. Awesome, fascinating perspective. Just so cool to hear how the church works in in uh, foreign international lands that maybe aren't the, as typical or traditional as you might see in Utah or even in the United States, right? Hopefully this was inspiring to you that you had some inspiration come to mind of maybe ways you could uh, apply some of these principles to your own leadership. Now, who else or what other type of How I Lead interview do we need to do? It'd be fun to hear from you if you go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. Send me a quick message and those do come directly to me and let us know what sort of calling that you would like to hear. And just to give you an idea, um, we are have a High Council How I Lead episode coming up, a Public Affairs, I have a Relief Society one coming up. And uh, so either in those, if you know a fantastic person I should talk to either in those callings or others, I would love to set up a time to connect with them, interview them remotely or in person and uh, continue to build on our library of the How I Lead interviews. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 and join the Core Leader community today. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.